Hello, friends, and thanks for joining us today for the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. We are in week four of our series called Church Hurt. Pastor Jen Zerby spoke out of a passage in Matthew 23 this week. Jen names and recognizes the various ways in history that the church at large or individuals associated with the church have often failed and hurt others. If we put our faith in our priest or in our pastor or spouse or friends, Christians will inevitably fail us. But when we put our faith in Christ alone, he will never fail. Remember, you can watch our live stream that happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Or you can always find us at hillcrestdecalb.com. Grace and peace. Well, as I, was, um, as I was growing up, there was a popular show on TV called Candid Camera. Remember that show? How many of you watched that show? Perfect. It was a show that was all about pranks. Although, to be perfectly honest, I only remember one of them. The one I remember was, um, was a photo place. Remember when you used to take film in to get developed? It was a photo place where you would take film in to get developed, and so people would come in and they would drop off their film, and the people would say, oh, it'll be ready in an hour. And so the people would leave, and then they'd come back in an hour, but during that hour, they'd transform the Photoshop into a dry cleaner. And so the people would come back, and it was just a dry cleaner, and they were like, it's always been a dry cleaner. What are you you looking for photos for? That's the only one I remember. I don't know. There's a a more modern-day equivalent of that show called Impractical Jokers. Do any of you watch that one? Okay. So this one is a little different. That one's, it's also a hidden camera show, but the people who run it, uh, they force each other to do really awkward pranks, and then if they don't do the pranks properly, they're punished by having to do something they're terrified of or, or even embarrassed of. And I know this is not cool to say, but I, I hate these shows. <laughs> I hate these shows. I had a nephew that was super into Impractical Jokers for a while, and so I tried really hard to play the cool aunt that would sit and watch for hours. <laughs> I just, I just hated it. And I hate these shows for the same reason that I hate crime shows, which is the same reason that I hate scary shows. Have you ever watched the news? The world is filled with enough real-life crime. I do not need to watch fake crime as a form of relaxation. <laughs> Have you been in the world? The world is scary. There's enough scary stuff in the world that you couldn't pay me enough to watch scary stuff for fun. This is not how I unwind. Thank you so much. And that's why I don't like pranks. I don't like pranks. I don't like shows about pranks. I know that makes me super uncool. And I know that people think that tricking people is super funny. But I can't stand it. I hate April Fool's Day. I don't like tricks. I don't like pranks. Because the whole world is already filled with enough people pretending to be something they're not. Our daily lives are already filled with things and people pretending to be something other than what they really are for a variety of reasons. And so this is not a form of entertainment for me to watch that happen in my spare time. No, thank you. Now, I don't mean to kill anybody's fun here. If that's your jam, knock yourself out. But I'm just saying it's not mine. Because here's the thing. We spend so much time trying to figure out what is really underneath or behind what people are doing or saying or how they're dressing Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Years ago, I had a roommate. uh, We lived together for a long time, and she would get these Christmas letters every year from her perfect cousin. That's what we called her, her perfect cousin. 
Her perfect cousin was absolutely gorgeous, and she was married to an absolutely gorgeous man, and they had absolutely gorgeous children, and they always took a picture in front of their absolutely gorgeous house or on absolutely gorgeous vacations. And everything about their life and their Christmas letter was perfect. And it was obnoxious, particularly because we knew that their life wasn't perfect. Is anyone's life perfect? Right? This is like Instagram. It's any form of social media. Now, I get when you're writing a Christmas letter that you're not like, my marriage fell apart this year. Merry Christmas. <laughs> like, I get that when you post a photo of your family in front of your house that the caption isn't like, we're in crushing debt to keep this house. Like, I understand that that's not how we do things. I get that when you're like posting major milestones of your family that you're not going to say like, I'm really sick and I lost my job. But then when do we say all those things? When do we share those things? We so often don't. That's what I mean. We, we just see lives as people portray them to us. We only see the stuff that you want us to see and we only show the stuff that we want to show. And we tend to only do this in a way that makes it look like we all have it all together, right? Aren't we all so good? And unfortunately, Christians don't seem any less likely to act this way. In fact, in fact, if we are perfectly honest, I think Christians often tend to feel a certain pressure, maybe even greater than that which the rest of the world feels, to present themselves in a particular way in public. So despite the fact that our identity theoretically should be found in Christ— and despite the fact that the church should be a place where people can be their most honest, true selves, history tells us that that is not true. And so this morning we are in week four of our series called Church Hurt, where we've been looking at some of the hurt and pain that has been caused by the church. And we started by talking about the importance of acknowledging the pain that the church has caused. And then we looked at the lack of freedom that we often experience as we struggle with doubt. Last week, we talked about deconstruction. And this week, well, this week isn't any lighter of a topic, if you were hoping for one. <laughs> I'm real sorry. Because we're talking about the hurt that we individual Christians have caused people. I told you at the beginning of the series that it wasn't going to be a light one. And I know that for those of us who have been in the church for decades, this series has maybe been a little difficult to hear. But I want to remind us again of the importance of naming things, the importance of owning our mistakes and our wrongs. It's so important in the healing and reconciliation process to which Christ calls us. And, and I want to remind, the, remind us of the importance of giving space to those who are struggling to be reminded that this will always be a place where we will preach the truth, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, and also that we want this to be a place where people have the freedom to engage their faith at their own pace, to ask questions along the way, and the freedom to acknowledge that we don't always live the way that we claim to live. And so with that said, we're going to dive into our text this morning, which comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. We're going to zero in on verses 27 and 28, so I'm going to read those two, and then I'll explain just a little bit. There's Bibles in front of you if you want to follow along. It'll also be up on the screen, or you're welcome just to listen if you'd like to. Matthew 23, 27 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, 
but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's not a very warm and fuzzy text. And the thing is, if we, if we draw back and look at the context, which I want to remind us is so important to do when you're looking at Scripture, the rest of this text all around that, it is no less warm and fuzzy. So what is this about, and why is Jesus, he's the one speaking here, why is he seemingly so angry in this text? Well, this is a section of text that is known as the seven woes. Why? Because if you look at the whole of Matthew 23, starting in verse 13, you'll see that there are seven different sentences or seven different paragraphs that Jesus begins with the phrase, woe to you. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. It was real uncomfortable. <laughs> Could you imagine if you had been there when Jesus was saying all of those words? He has some pretty strong words for the Pharisees. But who are the Pharisees and why did they matter enough for Jesus to say these things to them? Well, the Pharisees were the most influential group of of religious slash political leaders because they were really closely linked together in the New Testament. These were the people who were most faithful to Jewish law. They knew everything there was to know about Jewish law. It was like part rabbi, part lawyer. They knew everything there was to know and they were the people that other people went to when they were trying to learn about Jewish law. And so they were known as the most religious people of their time. The confusing thing about the Pharisees is because they were known as the most religious people in their time, it would seem that when Jesus came to earth, that this would be the group of people who would be his biggest fans, right? But instead, the Pharisees all throughout scripture are known as Jesus' antagonists. Why? Because just as this text says in Matthew, They care more about their religious system than those who are within it. They care more about their religious laws than the lawmaker, God himself. So the Pharisees were threatened by Jesus. They had all the knowledge and they had all the power and then Jesus shows up and he's here and he's teaching everybody something entirely different. He's he's flipping tables and with his tables he's flipping the law on its head. He suddenly comes in and starts talking about how love and and grace, those things come before the law. He's talking about how he came to fulfill the law, but the law is the Pharisees' favorite thing. It's how they know how to live. It's the only way they know how to honor God, by following the laws. Now, to be clear, the Pharisees, again, were not bad people. They were not bad people. They were generally trying to do good. They were good, honorable people who were trying to do right by God. But despite the fact that their own text told or foretold 
of a savior who was to come, Jesus was not what they were expecting. And so they didn't believe him. So Jesus had a lot to say to the Pharisees because Jesus came to bring about a new kingdom and that new kingdom had new laws and that law was not all about religion, it was about grace. And so in the verses that we looked at in the midst of all these seven woes, we see that, that text, chapter, or verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but are full of bones and everything unclean on the inside. In the same way, on the outside, you seem like you're righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. There are so many modern-day equivalents to this that I don't even know where to start. And so I hope that you'll forgive me because I'm going to start with the low-hanging fruit. The most well-known, documented, publicized versions of this. Now, my caveat to this is an important one. And it's that I understand that none of us, none of us want to be held to the worst day of our lives. And none of us want to be held to the worst mistakes we ever made. No one is perfect, not even pastors. And none of the people whose names I might mention here are beyond the grace of Jesus. And also, they caused so much harm. And the church's unwillingness to name that is part of what makes us complicit in it. This week, somebody came into my office and they pulled a book off of my shelf that was written by Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was the founding pastor of Willow Creek, which was arguably the most famous church in America for a very long time. God did amazing things through Bill Hybels. But he was let go a handful of years ago for sexual misconduct, which he never took ownership of. The church was divided over it. The church is still in the process of healing from it. And the title of the book that was pulled off my shelf was called Who You Are When No One Is Looking. You know, my original plan as I was writing this sermon was I was going to go through this whole list, person by person and issue by issue, James McDonald and Jim Baker and Ted Haggard and Mark Driscoll and Jerry Falwell Jr. and Rabbi Zacharias and Brian Houston and most recently Matt Chandler. Sexual abuse and fraud and affairs and theft and masses abuse of power and one by one these men have caused monumental damage to the church at large and to the witness of Christ everywhere. The list is so long. It's so long and it continues to grow, especially among those kind of huge churches with superstar pastors who have too much power and no accountability and it it keeps happening and it's going to keep happening. But those are just some of the ones who happen to be famous. And so their quote-unquote fall from grace, as it were, was public. And still, yeah, those were just the ones who got caught. And even beyond that, those were just the ones who got caught doing something that the actual law deemed wrong. And then I was going to go on and I was going to talk about Westboro Baptist Church and people like Pat Robertson and John Piper and Franklin Graham, people who still have microphones and platforms, but who have harmed a lot of people by the things that they have said and by the already marginalized groups that they continue to cause pain to. But the truth is there are tons of people we can point fingers at, myself very much included. And while God used all of those people despite their failures, those people harmed the image of Christ in our world, and it's important to name that. 
We have to name that because the church has been so unwilling to name that for all these years. Church culture raises these pastors and authors up on these huge pedestals. And then when they fall, we just sweep them under the rug like they never existed, completely ignoring the damage that they left behind. Our unwillingness to name their wrongs and the harm that they have caused, again, continues to keep the church complicit in their actions. And yet, while it's important to be able to name that stuff and to be able to maybe even name those people, I know that the reality is that if I were to go around this room and take a poll, or if I were to go out into our community and take a poll, I would guarantee you that the church hurt that you have experienced did not come from Bill Hybels or Pat Robertson. I would guarantee you that the church hurt that you experienced came from someone much closer, like your own parents, or your grandparents, or your siblings, or your youth pastor, or your pastor, or a small group or Bible study that you were in, or your own home church. For most people, church hurt is so deep And for many, it is so traumatic. For some, it was the institution itself. It was was her denomination that prevented her from living into her calling as a female preacher. Or it it was their unwillingness to offer communion to him because of his divorce. For others, it was the moment that a person who claimed to act or speak on God's behalf looked them in the eye and told them that they aren't welcome here because of their sexuality or because, or because they can't speak in church because of their gender or they can't become a leader in their church because of past choices that they've made. It's when people are made to feel less than because of their race or their language or the way they were dressed. It was when someone who worked on behalf of the church violated them or broke their trust or damaged their reputation It was when a place that said that they were all about integrity and honesty covered up abuse or misconduct. Or when a place that said they were about love and acceptance turned their back. When a pastor abused their power in a way that took advantage of others. Or when the church felt more like a club where only certain people were allowed in. Sometimes it was calculated and intentional, but most of the time... It was a result of years-long personal struggle and lack of accountability and a culture that continues to cover up misconduct. A couple of weeks ago during this series, I told a story about my own youth pastor and a prank that he played on me when I was in high school. And that turned out to be a profound moment for me. And I I don't mean the prank itself. You already know that that was a profound moment for me, but I meant actually telling you about it. Do you want to know why? because I thought you were going to laugh when I told you that story. I honestly did, I thought you were going to laugh, but instead of laughing, you all gasped because it was a horrible thing to do to a kid and your response was an appropriate one. But I thought you were going to laugh because that was part of the messed up culture of the church that I went to. If you couldn't laugh those things off, you weren't going to make it in that group. No matter how hurt we would get by the things that our youth pastor did or said, we could not be around him enough. We gave up jobs and quit sports teams to spend more time with him because that's what he asked of us, and we all wanted his attention. He would tease us and taunt us, embarrass us, and trick us 
And yet we just had to learn to laugh and pretend that we weren't hurt by any of it. On top of that, we and a lot of us were trained to fiercely protect him so that when he did things that were actually really wrong, nobody would tell on him. And it worked. He got to resign and walk away without ever being held accountable by the church for the things that he did because his army of recruits protected him just like they said they would and just like they were taught to. Now, he's not an evil person. And God used him in profound ways in a lot of people's lives, mine included. He was an unhealthy person who was given too much power and too much freedom. He was someone who was fed by the attention he received and and by his ability to play puppet master to so many kids. Now, I believe that justice belongs to the Lord and that we are all held accountable eventually, and so I have learned to let that pain go. However, my experience in that youth group was one of my very first real personal experiences in the church. And it was dysfunctional, and it was harmful, and it was miraculous that I ever went back to church again, let alone that I dedicated my life to its work. And it is miraculous, especially given that it was not my only experience with church hurt. And yet some of you have had experiences that were far more hurtful or damaging than mine. And church hurt is a really unique kind of hurt because it taps into a lot of layers. When you have a church or a pastor betray you or harm you, it's not that you're just dealing with the hurt that they caused or the betrayal itself. It's that you begin to question the entirety of your faith. That guy baptized my kids. He married my husband and I. He taught my confirmation class. He was my only Bible teacher as an adult in life. And, then he, and that's what he did? And then you begin to question everything. Was any of it real? How do I know what I'm supposed to believe? Why does my faith suddenly feel so shaky? Or I was told my whole life that God is love and that we are to love and that love is our priority. And then when I was brave enough to tell the church about X, Y, Z... Love is not the response that I got. And now the whole thing feels like a lie, and I don't want anything to do with it. Or the person in my life that told me over and over that she was praying for me ended up turning her back on me when I needed her most. Was she a fraud? Or is Jesus a fraud? On the outside, you appear to be people that are righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy, right? That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. That's what Jesus would say, I think, to so many of the situations in which many of you have found yourself harmed by the church. Jesus did not mince words, and he seemed to have saved his strongest words for those in the church, for those who represent and lead the church. I remember when I first became a youth pastor, I read Matthew 18, 6. And it says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus was not messing around. (laughs) I think of that passage so often as a pastor because I don't believe that Jesus just meant children. I believe that he meant all who are young or new to faith. And I take that responsibility seriously. And I should and I have to because I am not exempt from sin. 
Jesus was not messing around when he said, woe to you. Woe to you, church people. Woe to you, religious leaders. James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Jesus saved his harshest words for religious teachers for a reason. You can stand with confidence in knowing that God will deal with those who have caused you harm. And also you should know this. I'm going to hurt you. I am, or I might. Not intentionally. And hopefully not to the extent that we've been talking about, although I'm not exempt from any of that. But I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to say something to you that hurts your feelings. Or I'm going to fail to show up for you in the way that you want me to or when you want me to. I'm going to miss something in your life that was important to you. I'm going to say that I believe something differently than you. I hope and I pray that I never cause you the kind of harm that messes with your faith. But that's what I want to talk about as we close this morning. I will never ever condone or make excuses for the church hurt that you have experienced in your life. I won't. In fact, church hurt is one of the greatest sources of heartbreak to me. I wish I could sit with everyone who has experienced it and listen to your stories and somehow apologize for the pain that you have endured at the hands of people who claim to live a life in Jesus' name and then proceed to do the opposite. I'm also sorry for those of you who maybe haven't had a, maybe you haven't had a super personal experience with church hurt, but you have just seen the way that Christians tend to act in the world and you know how much damage that causes. Or for those of you who don't want to be associated with Christians because of what we're known to be like or what we're known to be against. I pray for the day when the church will start to look less like a religious institution and more like the person of Jesus. But while we work towards that, there's something I need to leave us with, and it's something that God tried to teach me very early on, and had I listened well, it would have saved me a lot of hurt. There's a song that came out in 1995 by the band Jars of Clay. Do you remember them? I was a brand new Christian, and hearing the song was the very first time since accepting Christ that I remember the Holy Spirit trying to tell me something. Because I heard this song and it stopped me dead in my tracks. The song says, the marionetter, meaning the puppet master, has your number. Pulling your arms and legs till you can't stand on your own. Dragging your conscience on the stage, your heart gets rearranged. And you cannot tell your mentor from your maker. And I knew in that moment that I did not know the difference between my youth pastor and God. But I was young, and I was immature, and I was new to faith, and I was extremely needy, and my youth pastor was physically there, and God didn't seem to be, and it just made sense to confuse the two. Friends, there are not enough sorries in all of the world to take away the pain that the church has caused over the years. I know that there is nothing that I can say that will change the hurt that some of you have felt by the church and those who claim to represent it. And the hurt that you experienced is not your fault. I wish the church was better. 
I wish that Christians were consistent. I wish that we would take all of the energy that we seem to muster up to fight with each other and put it towards living out the traits and the characteristics of Christ. I wish that I could promise you that the church will never hurt you again, but I can't. What I can do is talk to you about how it will affect you or not affect you. And the way to do that is to make sure that we never ever mix up our mentor with our maker. In other words, we have to know that our faith is in God alone and not in the people who claim to represent him. We need to know with complete confidence that just because God's people don't always get it right doesn't mean that God is wrong. If I came up here and I tried to impersonate, um, give me somebody famous. Great. I came up here and I tried to impersonate Angelina Jolie. I don't know how you do that, but I would inevitably do a terrible job of that because I can't do impersonations. That would not cause you to suddenly question whether Angelina Jolie is a real person. I know that's kind of a stupid analogy, but for those of you who have any kind of interest in faith, we have to make sure that our faith is in an unchanging God and not in the fickle people that God calls sons and daughters. God will not move and God will not change and God's very being is love. And so if what you are experiencing isn't love, then what you are experiencing isn't God. When your faith is caught up in your pastor or your Bible study leader or your spouse or the person who led you to Christ, then when that person inevitably messes up, your faith is going to feel shaken. No one else should be in charge of or leading your faith. And I'm gonna hopefully gently speak to those of you in the room who grew up Catholic because I think that's roughly half our church at this point. Now, if you've been around here for a while, you know that there is so much about the Catholic faith that I admire. You know that I think Protestants have a lot to learn about how Catholics handle confession and the beauty of ritual and how to acknowledge the sacredness of God. There's so much beauty in the Catholic Church. Please don't mishear that. But I also know that for those of you who grew up Catholic, a lot of you were taught not to own your own faith. And I need you to hear that your faith does not belong to a priest. And I need you to hear that your faith does not belong to me as a pastor. You do not need a mediator to come between you and God. You already have that and his name is Jesus. You are invited to come to Jesus with your whole self, just as you are. You can call on Jesus and Jesus is there. Now we can and should study and learn from and interpret scripture with other Christians in community. It is good to learn from and under people who are more knowledgeable than we are, but your faith is your faith. It is your faith in Jesus alone. And if your faith is in anything else, it is susceptible to falling apart at the first sign of trouble. When your faith is in God alone, when your identity and your worth and your value and your purpose are in God alone, then those things won't ever be shaken because God is immovable. As we said last week, God is our cornerstone, our foundation, our rock, and our anchor. If you encountered a Christian and what you experienced was not loving, then you experienced that person's humanity, not God's divinity. First John says God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God. 
I'd love to promise you, I would love to promise you that if you just hang out at Hillcrest, you'll never experience church hurt again, but I can't because this church is made up of people. And even though we are trying our best to live the way that Christ called us to, we are not always going to get it right. But my mistake is not God's. And my brokenness is not the church's. There was an exercise that I used to do with students when I was a youth pastor when we were talking about learning to trust in God. And I would partner them up and I would blindfold half of them and the blindfolded kids would stand on that side of the room and their non-blindfolded partners would stand on that side of the room and there was a whole mess of obstacles in the middle of the room that they had to climb over or climb under or, or walk around. And the only way they were going to know if there was an obstacle in front of them was by listening to their partner whose voice was coming from across the room except that all of the non-blindfolded kids were yelling different directions at the exact same time at the top of their lungs. And so you had to try to listen for your partner's voice. And every once in a while, because kids are kids and it was funny, one of them would yell the name of somebody who wasn't their partner and tell him to do something that wasn't for them to do. And inevitably, the kid would trip and fall or stumble. But the kid heard his name, and so he'd listen to that instruction, and sure enough, down he'd go. Friends, my prayer for us is not that you would come to church every Sunday and listen to my voice. It's that you would come to church every Sunday and listen for God's. Because even though I have the very best of intentions, even though it is my whole heart's desire to lead you closer to Jesus, I am going to do or say something that is not consistent with what God would do or say. You cannot listen to my voice. You have to listen for God's. And this is true in all situations in life. You can and should go to other Christians for community and for counsel, but you have got to learn to hear the voice of God through the chaos because it's the only one that will never fail you. Now you do not need to return to the place or to the people who hurt you. But if you stay away from God altogether, you will never find healing from your hurt. Learn to listen for his voice. God is who he says he is. Let's pray together. God, I have so, I have so many questions for you. I have so many questions that I would ask you and will ask you when given the opportunity to meet you face to face. And so many of them are around the life of the church and what we have done and how we got here. There are so many days, Lord, when I wish you would just come back just for a minute and auto-correct us. Put us on the right path. Help us fix what we broke. But Lord, I also believe that a lot of that you're calling us to do from within the church the call to name things that we've done, to seek restoration and reconciliation and healing, to offer apologies, to ask for forgiveness. It's all part of what you've taught us to do in this life. It's hard enough to do that in our personal relationships and it feels so difficult to do that as a church. 
God, I know that I can't and we as a church can't apologize to all of the people who have been hurt by things that people in the church or the church itself has done or said or left undone or left unsaid because silence is often just as harmful. But God, I pray that you would speak to those right now who are in pain. I pray that you would speak to those who are angry, who are holding on to bitterness. Help them to let it go, Lord. Help them to know that it's doing nothing but poisoning them. Lord, help us to know that we, as humanity are going, we know that we're gonna continue to screw up, God. We know that we're gonna continue to make mistakes. We know we're going to continue to represent you poorly in the world. Help us to do better. And help us to say we're sorry when we haven't. God, we continue to pray that the church as an institution would look more and more like you. We thank you for who you are and for the grace that covers us. We thank you that each and every moment of the day you are calling us back to yourself. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.